Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. I've been producing the Creative Writers Toolbelt now for nearly two years, and I think episode 50 is a bit of a milestone. But the important thing is this podcast only works if it's working for you guys. So if you have any suggestions, feel free to email them to me. If you think I'm giving out material that's just not useful, then you have my permission to drop me a line and take me up on it and tell me where I'm going wrong. And so long as you're not rude to me, I shall be very grateful for that. Thank you very much. So let's get down to business with episode 50. And I am delighted to present to you an interview with Nancy Cress. The interview includes an introduction of Nancy and her work. So I won't do that now. I had a great time interviewing Nancy but then I have a great time interviewing everybody that I interview and I'll tell you why that is it's because I interview people that I think are going to be interesting and are going to actually be able to share something with us that we can all learn from and Nancy is no exception to that so I'm really pleased that she agreed to have a conversation with me it's a great way for me to celebrate the 50th episode of the podcast I hope you enjoy it here's the interview my guest for this episode is the author Nancy Cress. Nancy has written 27 novels, three books on writing, four short story collections, and over a 100 works of short fiction. She's won six Nebula Awards, two Hugos, a Sturgeon Award, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. And her work has been translated into numerous languages, including Klingon. She lives in Seattle with her husband and Cosette, who is apparently the world's most spoiled toy poodle. Is that correct, Nancy? It certainly is. She's a princess. <laughs> Well, welcome, Nancy, to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Thank you for giving us time today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. The question I normally ask people uh, when, they, when they come onto the podcast, first of all, is can you, can you just spend us a moment and tell us how you got into writing? When did you start writing? Why, when did you discover that was the passion that you had in your life? Not very early. I have friends who knew when they were 7, 8, 12 that they wanted to be writers, but I didn't. I didn't start writing until I was nearly 30. And then because I was at home with my second pregnancy and there were no other women my age at home, on the road and we lived way out in the country and my then husband took the car to work and also in the evening because he was working on an MBA and I was going nuts. I started writing simply to have something to do that didn't involve Sesame Street and it went on from there but I didn't take it seriously for a very long time. I was a fourth grade teacher and that's what I expected to go back to doing. Right. Okay. And did you read much when you were a child? Did you read a lot or did you not read very much? What sort of thing captured your imagination then? Oh, yes. I read everything. I was the kind of kid that would read the back of the ketchup bottle if there was nothing else to read. And you know, Andrew, I've never met a writer who didn't read a lot when they were kids. Um, Some of them have stopped when they're older, but they were all omnivorous readers when they were children. And I would read anything and everything that came my way. Um, classics, trash, things I found lying around on the sidewalk, my mother's confession magazines that she hid in the linen closet, anything. And with a total lack of discrimination and evaluation and taste. So you just absorbed a kind of sponge-like anything that you could find. Absolutely anything. On the podcast, I've been looking at characterization over the last couple of episodes, and I'm finding myself dipping into your book, Dynamic Characters, quite a lot. But, um, I just want to ask you a few questions around character and characterization. And to start with, at the very beginning of Dynamic Characters, in the introduction, you use the quotation, character is plot. So do you think that really 
is the case that character is plot? And if it is, what, what does that actually mean? Yes, I do think it is the case. And this is what it means. When you put down a situation that you're starting your story with, or at least a little way in, something happens, something that is going to get the plot rolling, some inciting incident it's sometimes called, something goes wrong, some question is raised. It's a difficulty. It will imply conflict because if you don't have any conflict, then you don't have any story. Is The different people deal with conflict in vastly different ways. Some people get to work to try to solve the issue. Some people drink or drug. Some people turn around and blame George. Some people try to get somebody else to take care of it. And that's what I mean by character is plot. How your character approaches the situations that you set up will determine the whole rest of the story. And how your character approaches a situation is determined by what his personality is. So character does determine plot. So I mean, this kind of leads into something that uh, Jean Cavellos, who we talked about earlier, has mentioned to me. And for those who don't know her, she is the director of the Odyssey Writing Workshop. She said that perhaps the biggest problem she comes across with the, the people that come to her workshop, particularly, they, they just don't give their characters a goal. So how important do you think giving the characters a goal and giving the character a motivation of some kind is? to the story and the way the character develops. Oh, it's absolutely vital. In the first place, readers are not very interested in passive characters. Characters need to want something. And the more intensely they want it, the more we will eventually root for them to get it, assuming that this is the protagonist and he's sympathetic. But you have to have your characters want something because otherwise they won't act. Supposing, for instance, that Luke Skywalker, when he received the message in inside R2-D2 of Princess Leia, help me, Obi-Wan, help me, Obi-Wan. Supposing he had been a passive kind of character who didn't want to get off Tatooine, he might have said, oh, wow, this thing is really malfunctioning, yanked it out of there, and that would have been the end of the entire movie. You have to have characters who want to do something, even if it's only get off Tatooine, and even if they don't know how at that point they're going to do it. It's absolutely vital. I often use Star Wars characters as examples in, in some of the podcasts. I do too. When I use them when I teach because I found out that although my science fiction writing students may not have read the same books, they've almost always seen the same movies. So it's easier to refer to those. I do want to find examples for my podcasts and quite often I'm drawn to movies and I think that works up to a point but I'm always conscious in, in myself that I don't want to just refer to movies. If I'm talking about perhaps books that have been turned into movies i'll try and go back to the book to try and show the point mm -hmm. Yes. Well, the, the book is almost always better. Now, quite often as writers, we come across these kind of methods of doing a pick and mix for characteristics. And you can even, I mean, you can even get little bits of software that, that will create the facets of a character for you. And I, I think these things have their place. But how can we avoid the problem of coming up with just a collection of descriptions and making the mistake of thinking that what we've got is a real and complex character, when all it is is just a kind of mixed bag of physical characteristics or beliefs and attitudes and stuff like that? When I create a character, and the character usually comes at the very, to me at the very beginning, I will think of a character and a situation in tandem. For instance, I want to write about people who never need to sleep. The character comes to me, okay, this is going to start as a child. What would it be like with a child, with siblings who had to sleep and you didn't? The character came to me along with the situation. But especially with adult characters, the way that, that I do it is not so much to create the physicality and the attitudes and the beliefs as an exercise, but to try to get inside that character and feel them. It's actually closer to the Stanislavski or method of acting than it is to, to outlining. I try to become this person and think, all right, I am this person. What do I want? How would I go about getting it? 
How would I react to this situation? It's a chance almost to indulge in multiple personality syndrome, which I think writers are very good at it, which is one reason I think all of us are just a little bit nuts. I want to come back to this a little bit later, this sense of getting into the character and getting that before you get all the kind of trappings, as it were, of them. But when you do come to think about perhaps physical characteristics and features and mannerisms perhaps of your characters do you choose those having got that core character and try to choose other bits that are sympathetic to the core of the character yes you have to remember that you're now inhabiting this character and you're feeling them but the reader isn't you have to translate what you are feeling into words on the page and that means you try to to think not only what this character might do in terms of gestures and mannerisms, but which things that they would do actually convey something about them to someone who is not inhabiting this character. Gustave Flaubert said that the right gestures or the right details can create an entire scene in the reader's mind. If they are the right details, you only need three of them. That was what he said. I'm not going to argue with (laughs) Gustave Flaubert on the numbers, since for one thing he's dead. I can understand what he means. When you pick the right character attributes, the right gesture, the right way of dressing, the right way of speaking, then that can make the character come alive in the reader's mind, because they're seeing them from the outside. You're experiencing them from the inside, and it's your job to translate one into the other. You were referring just a couple of minutes ago to siblings where one is un- doesn't sleep and the other does so i think you were alluding there to your work beggars in spain and i was, I yes. was <laughs> glancing back again at, at that story earlier on today it's quite interesting that that one of the characters in that you you describe her as just predominantly with the color brown at the beginning of that story there's a woman she's sitting in this chair and she has brown hair and brown eyes and everything is brown. Is that like a kind of example of how you went into that character and then the, the description came from that? Yes. Elizabeth is a very passive-aggressive character, and she keeps a low profile but sort of strikes from the bushes, as it were. So brown would be one way of doing it, of yeah, out. Yeah. Yes. If people want to have a look at this story, it's, it's Beggars in Spain, isn't it? That's that's the story that we're alluding to. So if you've, you guys who are listening to this, if you're thinking, what are they talking about? Go and find that story <laughs> um, when we've finished here. Elizabeth's husband, Roger, I mean, you, you referred to three factors in a description. You, you talk about him as having a bullet-shaped head, a careful haircut, and an Italian silk business suit. Uh, the bullet-shaped head, these are class signifiers to some degree. He's not a handsome man. The kind of bullet head and thick neck indicates somebody who's come from up from working class. He's not a, an overbred aristocrat here. But the Italian silk suit is at war with that because this guy has made it. This guy has made lots and lots and lots of money, which is why he's getting able to afford a genetic engineering modification for his as yet unborn child. He's also in contrast to Elizabeth and his wife because he's pretty flamboyant. He lights a cigarette even though it's a filthy archaic habit nobody does anymore, but he takes it out from a gold cigarette case and lights a cigarette. It's he's deliberately drawing attention to himself. He is a flamboyant character and a decisive character, even an aggressive character in contrast to his wife Elizabeth, the brown woman. Okay, it's, it's really important that we get these things right. But what is, what is it is, that is especially important to get right at the beginning of int- when you first introduce a character? What are the kinds of things that you want to do when you first present the character to a reader? 
I want to make sure that the reader has this, the right impression that I'm going to be, that is the character's going to be the character's dominant note in the story. For instance, everybody has a bad mood and you can present a sympathetic character in a bad mood, but not initially. Because whatever we see initially, we are going to adopt as our basic impression of this person. That's true even with real people. There's been a lot of research that shows in the first few seconds of meeting somebody, we form an impression and it's hard to dislodge that impression. Yeah, yeah. So the first time a reader meets a character, even though this character is usually in a great mood, you can't present the one case where the, the character is cranky and irritable because no matter what she does after that, we have now labeled her in our mind cranky and irritable. So it's important on that first impression to decide how you want the reader to see this person and present that those details in that way for the initial impression. So in literature and in real life, first impressions count. Oh, absolutely. Anna Karenina doesn't turn up until chapter 11 of a novel that has her own name. But by that time, everybody has talked at her. Everybody has praised her to the sky. Everybody has said how beautiful and kind and, and um, poised she is. So when she shows up, we're expecting to see somebody beautiful, kind, and poised, and we do. I'm wondering whether that's, that's a device. So bringing in a primary character that far into to the book. Oh, it is a device. It's a way of creating a feeling this person is important. It's like when the emperor enters Rome and they're preceded by three miles of procession of soldiers and dancing girls and elephants and what have you. You're all getting geared up for somebody that matters. And I think that's what Tolstoy was doing. I mean... Tolstoy, a big beast of literature, he could probably get away with that. But I'd be scared to wait until chapter 11 to introduce my protagonist. I don't know whether that that's because that's sort of like current taste in literature or it just he can get away with it or what is it? Would, would you normally recommend that or would you say be careful about that? Oh, I would say be careful about it. He gets away with it, first of all, because this is a 19th century novel. There are lots of major characters and we see several of the other ones earlier on. We see the other pair besides Vronsky and Anna, the other pair that are Matt, are Kitty and Lennon, and we get a lot of them. The brother is going to, Stefan, Stepan is going to matter a lot. We see a lot of him. And the other reason is genre has some different rules than, than mainstream. Mainstream readers, and I'm really sorry to have to say this, but it's my impression, are a lot more patient and a lot more willing to sit through details until some of the main plot gets rolling. That hasn't been my experience in most genre. If you look at the books that are really popular, that really have the sales, they don't operate that way. They introduce a character fairly soon that we can root for, at least relatively, and then they start the plot rolling with that character fairly early. Take as an example um, George Martin's Game of Thrones. The very first chapter of the very first book, we're introduced to Bran Stark, this little boy who's going to become very critical throughout the series. And he is sympathetically portrayed, and he's on his way with his father for the very first time to witness his father meeting out justice in the form of an execution. So it has drama. It has the take seen through the eyes of somebody that is sympathetic and that we root for. And both character and plot get rolling instantly. I'm thinking about some of the books that I've read recently, and this would have been like in the science fiction or fantasy genre particularly. And pretty much without exception, the protagonist, you know, straight in there on page two or three, if not page one. Yeah, I just finished Paola Bacigalupi's The Water Knife, terrific book. And his his character, The Water Knife, Angel, Angel, is there uh, right on page one and doing something dramatic. I, I get the impression that's the kind of advice that a lot of creative writing tutors would be giving these days. And perhaps, you're right, perhaps it's particularly for writers of genre fiction. 
And I kind of regret that because I like the book that unveils very slowly. I enjoyed Jonathan Franzen's out-of-genre book, Freedom, in which for the first hundred pages, practically nothing happens. <laughs> and there's lots of exposition. But again, those are techniques that go with literary fiction. And although we have some literary fiction in science fiction, certainly, and degrees of literary fiction, and we have some that is very, when you look at the ones that are the most popular, commercial fiction does have the requirement that you get a character that we can root for on stage fairly early doing something. It's almost an example of you have to learn the craft and be good enough to break the rule, as it were, which is if the rule is get the character, your characters presented early, you have to be good enough to break that rule in your own craft and in, in your abilities before you can do it. Yes, that's true, but I'm, I just trust the word rule. I always do. I would say guidelines because okay, there yeah, are yeah. people who break it all the time and they manage to, to pull it off. Um, yeah. So much depends on the quality of the writing. If you're Ursula Le Guin and you can write a description of a phone book that is lyrical, <laughs> then you can delay getting the action yeah. going as long as you want. I'll stick with you. Now, earlier on, you alluded to the core of a character or understanding the character almost from the inside. You referred to Stanislav and his approach to acting and trying to bring that into the way we write. I kind of believe in this myself. I mean, I think you have to understand the essence of the character, the core of the character, before you can do any, before you can put any clothes on them or before you can give them mannerisms or whatever else. How do you do that? Can you expand a little bit more on that in terms of how you understand who a character is and then build out from there? Well, I wish I could. I really wish I could expand on it. But it's it's almost mystical. It's a feeling that I am now this person or I am in a Vulcan mind meld with this person, if you like. <laughs> and um, I can't explain it any more than that. So it's an organic thing, perhaps, then? I can remember when I was a girl, right up till I was about 12 or so, I would play imaginative games by myself where I would pretend to be an evil princess or a boy or things that I was not and try to feel how that was. And I think it's similar to that kind of thing. It's similar to the games of imagination that children play. John Gardner, the American mainstream writer, said, a writer must remain callow green in order to be fertile green. What I think he meant is that you have to hang on to that childhood ability to imagine deeply and completely that you're somebody else. Uh, we were talking about beggars in Spain earlier on. I'm kind of prompted to come back to that story because in that story within the first two or three pages you introduce some very striking characters when you think back to when you wrote that story did you feel that you knew really knew deep down who those people were from the very beginning i knew who roger and elizabeth were lisha isn't born yet and of course it's a little more difficult with children but as i be after their she and her twin sister alice are born they came to me more as i wrote them because children that, that's the way children naturally develop they, they come with certain core characteristics but they grow into being themselves and i think that's what happened with lisha and alan and Alice, too. But I did already know Roger and Elizabeth. They were very, very clear in my mind. And so was Susan Melling, the doctor who assists in this and later ends up marrying Roger as a second marriage. I, I knew her, too. I knew her brashness. I knew her intelligence. I knew her irreverence. And I knew her intense desire to have what Lysha will never have, what she will never have, but Lysha does. And also her innate decency that keeps her from resenting Lysha for having what Susan will never do. All of that stuff was clear to me. And did you know those characters in such a way that you knew the core of them and then you would you could explore out from there? It's, it's as if the features and facets of them would fall into place because you knew who their what their core was. Yes. Right. Roger's 
cruelty, emotional cruelty to his daughter that does sleep, the twin that he didn't plan on, which he is unkind towards later. That developed as I wrote it because Elizabeth sides with Alice and Roger sides with Lysha and this is not a happy family. But on the other hand, even though I didn't know he was going to do that ahead of time, it fits with the ruthlessness of his character, focused on what he wants and disdainful or at least not interested in anything he doesn't want. So it, it grew out of his core, even though I didn't know it until I got to that point of writing it. That's a feature of a successful character, isn't it? I suppose that you know their core so that you would then know how they would react in certain situations as, as and as certain things develop. Yes. When I'm teaching, I have what I call a mini bio sheet that I give my students and I ask them to think of one of their major characters and then to fill this out. And it, it starts very simple. What is your character's name? How old is he? You know, whatever. And then it gets into the things like, what does your character fear the most? Name two things your character loves. And it's not that I want them to start inventing this. It's that they should already, when they start focusing on this, know. They haven't thought about it before. But they should know. It should flow out from what they know about that character. And if it doesn't, I want them to reimagine the character in greater detail in their mind or refeel the character so that these things, oh, yes, of course, that's what she's afraid of the most in the world. To go through this process, do you do much in terms of create backstory for your character? Not so much. The backstory, if I need it, emerges as I'm writing it. Uh, right now, I'm writing a, <laughs> a protagonist for a new book that I probably have no business writing because this is somebody so far away from me. This is a 24-year-old U.S. Army Ranger. You know, the Rangers are the elite of the elite of special forces. And this is a 24-year-old male. I'm reading a lot about the Rangers, but all of that will be details, what kind of a rifle he carries, whatever. I already know what Leah was like as a person, and I'm going to have to go with that as I try to make the other details emerge as they do. And for backstory of his, I have some, but I don't need a lot because Leo is not the kind of a person who spends much time thinking about the past. He's a very present focused, not the brightest young man on the planet, but innately decent. And he's a present-focused person with a basically optimistic outlook. For somebody like Marianne Jenner in my novella, Yesterday's Kin, the one that just won the Nebula in June, that was different. She's a woman with three children and a very complicated past. So her past did emerge a lot more, and I knew a little more about it before I started. To begin with, when, when the story opens... She's something like 51 or 52, which means she has a past. A 24-year-old doesn't have that much of it. I mean, he does as a childhood, but it, he yes. doesn't have the kind of experiences that Marianne, as the mother of three children, is still trying to deal with. Three very difficult children. Now, what you're saying there actually it prompts me to, to think about something else around this, because if, if we believe that we have to find the essence of the character, find the heart of the character, and then organically the character grows from there... How does one then approach that? So, so for example, for you, you're saying you, you've got to get into the mind of a 24-year-old ranger. For me, perhaps the challenge would be if I decided I needed to write a story about uh, a 16-year-old girl, say. That's completely on another planet from who I am. Actually, that's kind of on another planet for me, too. I didn't understand 16-year-olds when I was one, and it would be very difficult for me to do now. All right. <laughs> Well, okay, so let's, if we pick that as a challenge, if a character presented themselves, let's say a character and a plot intertwined presented themselves to you in a very compelling way, and it happened to be, perhaps as it has with the story you're talking about, somebody who, who you are not, and that, so you're crossing gender 
boundaries and race boundaries and, and class boundaries and all of this sort of stuff. How do you or how would we as writers find that person? I think that the core is still the same. The basic questions are people want things. What does this person want? What kind of things does this person want in their life? What does this kind of things does this person love? What kind of things does this person fear? They're not the same for all of us, but we all have those emotions. If, if you grab a hold of the core, as I hope I have with Leo, my ranger, the rest of the details can be added with research and reading and to make the character plausible. But if the core feels plausible, then, then I think you can do the rest. The biggest danger in creating a character, oddly enough, the hardest one, is not the character that's different from you, but the character that is you. A lot of student fiction I see fails because the main character, the protagonist, is the writer. And because of that, they don't really observe themselves from the outside enough to provide the kind of details that will convince the reader. They know themselves so well that they don't end up on the page. Yeah, because they don't have to explain themselves to themselves at all, do they? Because they already know who they are. Right, and they don't observe themselves. People are very unobservant about their own gestures and what they mean and how they project themselves to others. Even Marianne Jenner, who is a middle-aged woman, as am I, is still not me because she's a scientist. She has a far different approach. And because work, scientific work has been all consuming in her life. So she's not me. So you've managed to put some distance between her and you so that you can then perhaps step back and look at her and tell us who she is. Yes. And again, it's a schizophrenic trick. You have to identify with the core, but have some distance as to how they look from the outside. (laughs) Okay. Just, Just putting a bit of a twist on it now then. We've talked about the protagonist and protagonist but there's also the challenge that we have as writers which is to write the convincing antagonist the the bad guy if you like people have said to me and i've read things about people should feel at least some empathy perhaps for the antagonist they don't have to like them but they have to empathize they have to understand who they are how do you approach the antagonist how do you approach the people who would be i suppose in the in the blunt sense the bad characters in a story i'm not sure that empathy is what you need but plausibility is and for plausibility you have to believe that these characters have reasons for the bad things that they are doing hitler genuinely believed that he was aiding germany by his horrific programs to wipe out the Jews. He actually believed this was for Germany's good. That I can't empathize with that, of course, but at least it gives him a motivation. The problems, the villains I have the most trouble with are those that are engaging in pure evil just because the author needs somebody who's engaging in pure evil. I think pure evil, pure cruelty for its own sake, is a very rare thing, and it's not even very interesting. Um, what is interesting is that the twisted motives that people have for doing evil things And if you can get clear in your mind what this person believes is their reason for doing this, and you can convey that to the reader, villains become much more plausible and much more interesting. So without agreeing with what the villain does, somehow we have to see into their worldview and their mindset and how they've come to the point that they've come to. Yes, even if it's a repulsive mindset, we have to understand it. We don't have to empathize with it, but we have to understand why this person is doing what they're doing. It has to make sense in terms of what we know about the world. It it, it can make a very twisted kind of sense, but it has to make some kind of sense. 
So not that Roger is an arch baddie, but we, we understand how he's got to where he's got to. Yes. He is a ruthless financier. He is focused exclusively on getting what he wants. But he's not a cruel person ordinarily. His his cruelty towards his daughter Alice is he doesn't even know he is being cruel. It's a casual kind of neglect because he's so much more interested in her sister, the, the sleepless child. And he but he is not a, a bad person. He's a person who and he's very um, kind and loving towards Lysha, whom he loves and understands. It's just that he has, like most people, like all of us, blinkers on. He sees only some things and not other things. So it, it wouldn't occur to him to behave in any other way? No. And he's not an introspective man either. He doesn't, you know, question his own behavior. No. I mean, I, I got this in. He doesn't, he's not one of these people that has a kind of interior life. No. I think masters of the universe very seldom do. <laughs> So, it's just in, just staying on the subject of the antagonist, the, the, these kind of characters that we have to write that are, perhaps we can enjoy writing actually that are the bad guys. I enjoy it. it uh, yeah, it's it's fun, isn't it? I mean, if you get a good, if you get a bad guy right, it's great. And I use the term guy, uh, you know, male, female, whoever they are. Yes. Is there anything else that you think is like critical in terms of approaching the bad character, the antagonist? Is there anything else that's like a must do in terms of the way we present them? Well, a lot depends on whether or not they're a point of view character. If they're a point of view character, you can get into their mind and we can explore it a lot more fully. If we're only seeing them from the outside, then you have to find more inventive ways for us to be aware of what their motivations are. And this is where movies are a great help to study because everything has to be presented through actions, gestures, dialogues. And you can look at how an antagonist is presented there and get a sense of what it is that they're after and why. I don't find Darth Vader even remotely convincing. He's just not either convincing or interesting, and I think that there could have been a more interesting villain there. But on the other hand, there are other places where they are interesting, and if you, you look at those and you see how it's done from the outside with people talking about them, with people speculating what their motives are, with them actually saying something under moments of stress about why they're doing what they're doing to somebody else, you have to find ways to doing it from the outside. Do you often use other characters to show who a character is? I mean, do, or how do you use characters together, perhaps, perhaps with dialogue, perhaps just in the way they behave with each other, to reveal character? Yes, that's a very good way to do it. And it's even better if you have two characters or three who have different views of the same person, which is what I'm trying to write now. My, my ranger, Leo, has a very idealized view of his lieutenant, who actually is an old friend. They knew each other as children. And a couple of the other characters don't have this idealized view of this guy. And so you, as the reader goes along, they're thinking, well, Who's right? What is Owen really like? And then when Owen finally acts, other than just in prescribed ways, as the book develops, they get to see who was actually correct about their view. And is there a role for tension and conflict in that as well, in, in, in that dynamic? Oh, yeah, that's one way you create tension. Tension comes from the reader wanting to know what will they do next? What will happen? Um, that's the basic of tension. You've got to create that. You've got to create dramatic questions very early. Sometimes people do it with the very first sentence. There's a Tom Clancy novel, I don't remember which one, but it opens with a group of men moving silently across Siberia at night. And the first thing you wonder is, okay, why? Why have you got a group of guys at night moving across the Siberian landscape very stealthily? That's a very simple dramatic question, but from there it unfolds and it keeps you reading. And when one question is answered, another one can take its place. 
of thinking about captivating the readers, um, the subtitle for your book, Dynamic Characters, is how to create personalities that keep readers captivated. So what are the key things that we have to do with our characters to keep readers captivated? Well, first of all, I didn't put that subtitle on my book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. It seems a, a little hubristic. The, the Writer's Digest people put that on it. But I think Readers find active characters more interesting than passive ones. Characters who are sympathetic in some way more interesting than those that are absolute shits. Characters who try different things um, more interesting than those who try one thing and give up. Characters who are basically decent people are more interesting and easier to identify with, even though they have lapses, than those that are not. So those are some of the ways, some of the starting places. Coming back to what you just said there about characters who are decent people, is it decent people put under unreasonable pressure or is it decent people put into indecent circumstances that interests us or is it how, how does that work yes that's one of the ways you that, it, that a story can go yes you can put take a decent person and present them with a moral challenge or an impulsive action are you watching the game of thrones at all i've watched some of it yes certainly yes Tyrion is a basically decent guy he's been um abused all of his life because he's uh, a dwarf but he is doing the best that he can and almost all of his actions are decent right up till the point where he kills his father and we understand why he's driven to do that and we see the devastation that having done it causes him even though it was in many ways justified and we see the pressure that he's under for this and it only deepens our empathy for him or at least it deepens my empathy for him so perhaps we couldn't have seen Tyrion killing his father as the first thing we saw of him we'd have oh, no. to know who he is before that before Martin can show us this character doing oh that. yes and we also have to see who the father is we have to see that Tywin Lannister yeah, is cruel and ruthless and has done some really awful things including to Tyrion when Jamie Lannister in the first book throws Bran this child out of the window we can't feel sympathy for Jamie in any way we can't feel that he's just we know why he did it, but we can't justify it's not justified in any way and even though George Martin has now spent five books trying to rehabilitate Jamie Lannister I, for one, am not convinced. I will never forgive him for throwing that child out the window. I don't care if he saves all of Westeros. It doesn't matter. But is, are you not convinced because of the power of that first impression? Yes. Oh, I'm convinced that Jamie is evolving. I just don't care. I mean, yeah. he's, I'm not going to change my opinion of him. Which is fatal if you're the writer, isn't it? If the you know you you want you want, I suppose you want readers to love or even hate your characters, but if they don't care, that's really that's you really got problems in it. On the other hand, I may be in the minority here because a lot of people feel that Jamie's evolution has made him um, a decent person now, but I'm not convinced. And you probably never will be now. <laughs> <laughs> no. I have two kids. Anybody who throws that kid out of a window is, is doomed, in my view, forever. Yeah, yeah, that's it, really, isn't it? I don't know, maybe if that had happened five books in, maybe you would have more sympathy for him, I don't nope. know. Nope. <laughs> oh, not children, so, not children, no. Yeah, well, that's interesting, actually, because I guess there's a there's a caution there for writers, isn't there, that what I, as a writer, might think I could put in a, in chapter 30, and it's like, my main character had a bad day and did X, but you'll, he'll get over it, and you readers will love him. But actually, X might be the thing which cuts some readers off completely. It depends, of course, on what X is and of who course. the readers are. Yes. As I say, a lot of people have forgiven Jamie. 
but a lot of people haven't, I suspect. No, I, swear, I think a lot of mothers have not. Yeah, well, and, and maybe that's, I don't know, maybe there's, there's something in that, isn't there? It's like uh, a mother wouldn't do it, or if she did, you'd never forgive her. I, I don't know. <laughs> I want to change, change tack a little bit now. Sometimes when you're reading something, the writer presents the character thinking something. So it's like as if the reader hears what's going on inside the character's head. Does that ever work, that device? And if it does sometimes work, how can you make it work? Oh, yes. I think it works very well. Okay. What you have to do is you have to keep the thinking short, a sentence or two, interspersed in the middle throughout the scene. I'm frequently telling my students, take me deeper into your character's thoughts. But that doesn't mean that I want three pages of them ruminating on something. I I want snippets scattered throughout whatever is going on so that I see their internal reactions. And it's especially good if the internal reactions, the the thoughts that you're seeing, are at odds with what seems to be going on on the surface. For instance, the character who looks at her boss, who's who's been told, I want you to do this and I want you to do it by Thursday. And I don't want to see any mistakes in it the way I did the last time. And she nods and she says, oh, there won't be. And you'll have it by Thursday. It'll be terrific. And she smiles at him and walks out. And then the, inter- the thought that you give us from her is, I hate your guts. You have a, a dual, a duality there, a tension between the outer and the inner. And, and that can be very effective at both characterizing and in putting tension into a scene. And in pretty, pretty much all stories, although we have a protagonist and antagonist, but we also have secondary characters, characters that maybe just come in and out of the story. How can we create secondary or peripheral characters in a very efficient way without making them seem like they're a cardboard cutout? Well, I think it depends on how peripheral they are. The waitress who brings your guys coffee while they're sitting there in a in a diner intently discussing something doesn't have to be characterized. We don't even have to know what she looks like or anything about her. If they're going to be just walk-on spear carriers, we also don't need to know a whole lot about them. You don't want to make the mistake of fully developing all the characters that are more peripheral because, uh, first of all, your book will be 5,000 pages long. And secondly, it will seem very dilute. We won't know who we're supposed to be following. Whose story is this? So the peripheral characters, they need to be plausible, but they don't need to be as fully fully rounded. And is it the case that for minor characters, if whatever you want to call them, you can still achieve that three bits of description and they're there and you know who they are? even if you're only using them briefly. Yes, and then move on. Yes. But again, you might not even need that. If, if the person is making a one-time appearance, then that might be enough. So those are all the kind of things, the questions that I wanted to ask you. But I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you think is important around this whole subject of character and characterization that we haven't covered, but you think is, is we should remember, we should talk about. Well, I think there is an issue with creating characters. This has only come up in the last 10 years or so who belong to minorities. And this can be a very touchy thing. I wrote a novel called Stinger, in which one of my protagonists is a black woman scientist from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And she's in charge of stopping an epidemic that has started in the United States. I'm not black. I was trying to draw on what I would have in common with her, as well as those things that come from the history in the United States of race relations, which have been rocky to say the least. And when I finished it, I showed it to three black girlfriends saying, would you please read this and see if I've made a fool of myself? And all three of them said, no, no, I I know people like this. This is okay, except lose the sunscreen and you got the hair wrong. 
So I fixed the hair <laughs> and loused the sunscreen. And those kinds of details were, were useful. But it's a tricky thing to do this. And it's especially tricky right now because I don't know how it is in the UK. But in the United States, everybody seems ready to be offended at everything at the, at the simple drop of a hat. There are people, and I've been on panels at science fiction conventions that have gone through this at tedious length, who say you should never create a character from any other culture because it's cultural appropriation and you don't know what you're doing anyway. I don't I don't subscribe to that. But I do think that it can be tricky and that you have to be a little bit sensitive to the differences and to the way these characters are presented, which doesn't mean they can't be the villain. It doesn't mean that they can't be humanly flawed. But you do have to think about it, especially right now, right here. Yeah. I mean, this, it, it, this is a hot topic, isn't it, really? It, uh, it, yes, it is. And it's an issue within the genre. It's diversity and all of the things associated with it is a massive issue at the moment. Yes, it is. The other side of that is that no matter what you do, you're not going to please everybody. George Martin has received criticism because he created a dwarf character, and he's not a dwarf. And he has received criticism because there is quite a bit of violence towards women in his books. Well, George has said that he base this on the War of the Roses, and God knows the 1400s were violent enough. Nothing he has done in any way is outside of the way things would have been at the time he's writing about. But he's received criticism anyway, because there is nothing you can write that somebody somewhere isn't going to criticize. And I think it's important that aspiring writers understand that. You will never please them all with your character, and you will never please them all with your technique. If you put in a lot of exposition, some people will say, oh, the story was too slow, there was too much exposition. If you don't put enough exposition, some people will say, well, I didn't, under you know, it didn't really feel convincing. The world wasn't developed enough. I, I really needed to know more about it. If you put in a lot of accurate science, people will say, oh, there were too much scientific details. And if you don't put in a lot of accurate science, people will say, well, you know, more science would have made it more plausible. There is nothing you can do that isn't going to be shot down by somebody. So the best thing you can do is trust your instincts as they have been molded by a lot of reading of successful works. It's interesting to hear what you said about how you approached creating a, a black character and creating that character with integrity. Is that the way to do it? Should, should we be brave, as it were, and talk about different characters in different different kinds of people who are not us. But how do we approach that with respect, I suppose? How do we get that right? Just by not being condescending is the only thing I can think of. That all the characters of any race and any background and any religion should have their full humanity. But that doesn't mean they should be idealized. I once had an, a discussion with a white woman SF writer, and I'm not going to say who she is because I really respect and like her and I enjoy her work, but I think on this she was dead wrong. She said, I never create a weak female character because fiction is full of weak women and I don't want to add to that. And I, I said to her, well, I, I, you know, some women are weak. Surely the way to do it is to create women who span the spectrum of weak, strong, and somewhere in between, rather than feeling that every woman you write has to be a strong woman. Because I, I don't regard fiction as a means to a political crusade. I, I would rather regard it as a reflection of reality. And reality is complicated, multi-layered, messy. And I think the best fiction captures that. 
I'm glad you brought this up actually because I think it is it is such a huge topic and many of the things that have happened within the certainly within the science fiction community maybe in the recent year or two probably have not helped just in terms of of creating even an even more acidic environment it's difficult for it's difficult for people to be kind to each other who are disagreeing on things yes it is and and of course social media has only exacerbated this but I think everybody should calm down and give everybody else the benefit of the doubt however I doubt don't think this is going to happen <laughs> Well, I, I, my hope is that a, a critical mass of people who are people of goodwill, who happen to take all kinds of views, will say, you know what, it's okay, we're going to enjoy the story, let's treat each other with respect, and just try and kind of feel our, our way forward. That would be nice, but I'm not holding my breath. No, well, <laughs> we can but try. <laughs> we can um, but try. So is there anything else that you would give as like last bit of advice from Nancy before we finish? Read. Read lots of stuff. When I teach, the first thing I do with a new class is we go around the table and I ask them what they've been reading lately and who their favorite SF authors are. And when I, and I find an appallingly high number of people who have not been reading anything and a, a smaller but still appallingly high number who have not been reading science fiction. And you, you need to read. You need to read a lot of stuff. You need to think about what you read. You need to look at it partly in terms of how the author achieved his effects, but mostly just to absorb on an unconscious level how stories work. You're talking about writers who want to write science fiction that's publishable quality and they're not reading science fiction. Yeah, sometimes they're not reading anything. Okay, well, they should get and read something. They should. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have a pile of stuff waiting. I've got books that I read and I also use audiobooks. I just enjoy my fantasy and my science fiction, but I probably need to kind of break out of the genre a little bit as well because I, I tend to just sort of sit, sit within that genre. And there's some, there's some fantastic stuff. When I do, when I do venture out and read something that's maybe mainstream or literary fiction or whatever, I usually enjoy it. So I need to kind of get out of, get out of that little ghetto that I'm in and, and read some other genre as well. Well, there's certainly a lot of good stuff out there. My favorite author of all time, absolutely hands down, is not even a science fiction writer. It's Jane Austen. Ah, Jane Austen. Well. Yes. <laughs> there's a very short list of people who I refer to, authors who I refer to in my podcast, mainly because I want to refer to stuff that people know. But I do use Jane Austen from time to time because it's just wonderful. She is. She is wonderful. And yet there are readers I know, even some very intelligent people who don't like Jane Austen. You can never, ever please everybody. I suppose you cannot like her, but so long as you've given her a chance. So just to finish saying that, see, um, if people are interested in looking at your work, and certainly we've referred to, we've referred to dynamic characters, we've referred to Beggars in Spain, and, and, and you've, talk, you've talked about other uh, bits of your work. How how can people find your work? Well, I have coming out tomorrow, actually, from Subterranean Press, um, a collector's edition, The Best of Nancy Cress. Ah, okay. And that has 21 of what I consider to be my best stories. So that wouldn't be a bad place to start, although it's sort of an expensive place to start because it's a collector's edition. Uh, my website is nancycress.com, and it talks about the, the work that's out there and that's available. I, I would suggest starting with Beggars in Spain because it's more accessible than a lot of my other work to people who are not science fiction readers. I would also suggest the last two standalone novellas because they both won Nebulas, which were After the Fall, Before the Fall, During the Fall, and Yesterday's Kin. And they're both from Tachyon. Okay. The, the, this work can be accessed via your website. Or on Amazon. Or on Amazon, yeah. Everything's available on Amazon. Well, it, it does seem to be, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I tend to assume anything any Bodies published is available on Amazon, but I always like the people I speak to to be able to refer to their own website and talk about it. Um, and, and certainly for anybody listening to this, when, when Nancy says tomorrow, we're talking about uh, the 30th of September. So 
when you hear this that book is out there so you can go and find it now Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. It's been great to talk to you. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. I think we've had a great conversation. And thank you very much to you for agreeing to speak to us on the Creative Writers Talk. Mm-hmm.